I know these are unusual times, aren't they, in certain ways? I was watching the news and thinking about, thinking back to when we, uh, watching the situation in Ukraine a little bit, and I know that's distracting for us. I was thinking back to when we were in Venezuela and we were working there in some of the minority areas, and I, I w went out to town to connect with some of our leadership team, and we heard in that moment that our organization was being asked to leave the country. And we had been working there for a long time and just reminded me of the reality of the sovereign control of God over the affairs of life. And certainly in the Kings, which we're going to spend our time in today, we'll see that as well. That God indeed is sovereign over the affairs of human beings, even though at times we feel somewhat lost in the way we understand what God's about. And uh, we see God's providence continued in similar kinds of ways here in Kings. So we're going to be in Kings this morning, and I'm going to get us back onto that narrative storyline together as we look at our outline and as we think about God's redemptive purposes through these, uh, these, this period of time where he was working with, with the kings of Israel and Judah. Uh, let's start uh, this morning by praying together, and then we'll begin with our, with our lesson today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, your gracious work in us and with us. We thank you that you have chosen to include us in your covenant economy and your covenant purposes. We thank you that we don't lack for hope in the big picture of where you're taking redemptive history. And uh, we have the opportunity to be safely invested and all that you're about. And so we just pray that we can see ourselves committed that way. We can look back on these examples and find the sufficiency of Lord Jesus Christ uh, as we uh, even learn from lives that reflected somewhat poorly the, the responsibilities that they had in light of your covenant purposes. And so we just pray for our hearts to be more in tune with what you'd have for us to do day by day. And we certainly remember the world situation, too, and ask for your wise uh, intervention and, and for those believers in country there who experience significant challenges in Ukraine today, uh, that they would find their sufficiency in you. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, we're going to do a little bit of catch-up. I don't know how many of you were in the first half of this, of this class. The first semester half. So I think quite a few who actually weren't. Um, so let's review back into the purposes of God. It's important, I think, for us to, to remember what the historical ground is that we've covered to this point. So the, the book of 1 Kings, and we're going to take the books of 1 and 2 Kings together today. The book of 1 Kings opens with the person of David, King David. He's lying on his deathbed. He's 70 years old. He's, he's a frail old man who's experienced lots of warfare, um, lots of opposition from others. He's a man who's uh, been described by God as the shepherd, the faithful shepherd king of Israel. Right? You with me? And so he's now in a place of critical juncture in both his, of course, his rule and his heritage or his, the trajectory of his uh, future descendants 
And also the redemptive purposes of God are in a very critical place. Now we keep in mind um, that God calls His people to always take His covenant reputation seriously. So God is a covenant-keeping God who has a reputation that He wants to maintain. And as David reflected on his heritage as God's shepherd king, he would have known the first five books of the Old Testament that we've already covered. Some of you were in here and some of you weren't. The first five books of the Old Testament that are known as the Torah, the teaching of Israel, the books of Moses. And so as we return to the narrative line today, let's just briefly review that covenantal thread that brings us up to this point in the narrative, okay? So we start, if we go back, and I don't want you to turn there, we're going to do some turning around in the, book of, the books of Kings today, but if, you, if we go all the way back into God's creation covenant, many people would say, theologians would even describe God's covenant with creation as God creating Adam and Eve to establish them in a relationship based on his loyal love. So God's love, his covenantal love has never changed, right? Have you, some of you have heard the name, the, the Hebrew term hesed, which is God's unfailing covenantal love. God's covenant name is even mentioned in the book of Genesis, even though he didn't actually introduce that until the book of Exodus when he was talking with Moses before the burning bush. But God introduced his covenant name Yahweh, in the book of Genesis. And so we see evidence in God's creative acts with Adam and Eve that He established them in a relationship of loyal love, trust, right? So the, the economy of God in terms of how people respond, relate to Him in love and trust has not ever changed. Loyal love, trust, which implies obedience from the people that God calls into His own as His possession. And so we see that in the book of Genesis. And of course, you know the story. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall. So we see man defying the terms of the covenant that God established with him. And in the process of that, God initiated in Genesis chapter 3 a rescue plan. Are you, are you guys following me there? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? You with me? And in which God determined that he was going to rescue his people. And so we pick up in a judgment period that precedes Noah and a Noahic covenant in which God still has these ones He wants to, to live as obedient sons and daughters of His. So in his, created in God's image and likeness as obedient sons and daughters who are, who are designed to steward God's creation. And that, that covenant arrangement or that economy of God hasn't changed. God desires for people to live relating to Him, responding to Him in loyal love, obedience, and trust, and to steward His economy of creation. And so we have that creation covenant in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We have the Noahic covenant that comes a little later in, in the latter part of Genesis chapters. There are 9, 10, 11. And then we move in chapter 12 of Genesis into the Abrahamic covenant, where God uh, specifies an individual in, in the early part of Genesis chapter 12 to be his covenant representative, and God determines he's going to make a special people out of Abraham. And he promises Abraham, what does he promise him? Anybody remember? What's he, what does God promise Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, the early part there? People. A people, who said that? Yeah, a people, right? And what do you mean by that? 
Yeah, that's right. So some, some set of descendants, a significant number in fact, because he compared them to sands on the seashore and stars in the sky, right? What else did God promise Abraham? Yeah, there's that. The descendants. We got the descendants. What else? A promised land. A promised land, right? And why, why do you think God promised Abraham a land? Why? Why did God care to give his people a land? Yeah, a place of rest. Yeah, that's because God's, God's intention for his people was always to provide them a rest. A place of rest. And... In the beginning, God created Eden in such a way that that was a place of rest, granted a place of work, but in God's economy and in right relationship with God, rest was promised to them. So God intended for them to have rest. So we have land, we have seed, descendants, and then there's one other really key issue from the Abrahamic covenant. Anybody remember? Yeah, that's a really significant issue. Because God always intended from the very beginning for His eternal purposes to go all, all throughout the earth. So He intended for the whole earth to be an, an example of His dominion, His glory, right? So God wanted His covenant name to extend through the earth and through the fall, that marring of the image of God in man made it such that they wouldn't pursue that well. So with the person of Abraham, God specified a people who would be that covenant representative, God's chosen, obedient son. And then we have, so that's Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, those sons of, of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, Jacob and, and Joseph end up where? At the end of the book of Genesis. Where do they end up? Egypt. In Egypt, that's right. So then in Exodus, we have the events of 400 years of God's people finding they're themselves in slavery and God having to rescue or redeem them back out, right? That's 1446 as a key date there. God is still requiring loyal love from his people as he redeems them back out. And as he's redeeming them back out in Exodus, does anybody remember what key institutional structure gets created, talked about in the second half of the book of Exodus? What was that? Yeah, good. Good job. So God establishes a specific place, or he talks to the people about establishing a, a specific place for his presence to dwell among them. But in the process of that, in Exodus, in Leviticus, God has to do more than just establish a tabernacle place of presence. He needs to do something to, um, to represent himself rightly among the people. So why, why the book of Leviticus then? So we have the people who have exited Egypt, God's calling them to Himself. He's bringing them back to the promised land uh, after slavery in Egypt. Why? And we have the tabernacle. Why is it that God gives us the book of Exodus then? Or the book of Leviticus? What's the book of Leviticus about? Sacrifice. Sacrificial system. So there's imaging pointing forward toward the redemption of Christ. And what's the primary purpose? What word comes to your mind when you think of... If you were going to say one word that comes to your mind, or two words, because I can think of a couple that come to your mind when you think of the book of Leviticus, what would those be? Priests. Priest, priestly system. So Levites. Who said that? Yep, there you go. So priestly system, Levites. What else? What else does that create a need for? Worship. Worship and the holiness of God, right? So God's showing himself as separate and set apart 
and teaching the people how to relate rightly to him in the book of Leviticus. So Leviticus occurs as the Israelites are standing before Mount Sinai, Sinai, that's right, in the desert, and God is wanting his people to understand how to relate rightly to him, so he gives them the book of Leviticus to instruct them in the sacrificial systems, special feasts, uh, days, atonement, the day of atonement, other kinds of days that are significant. And then what happens in the book of Numbers? Numbers. Numbers. <laughs> there are lots of numbers, that's right. Numbers can be one of those places where you get bogged down if you didn't lose your way in Leviticus already. Yeah, that's right, because there are censuses taken of the people, right? That's why. But what else happens in the book book of Numbers? What's the key theme or the key issue in the book of Numbers? Anybody remember? Anybody? The book of Numbers, what happens there? Yeah, the people come up to the, this, this place of promise, the people come up to the border, and they decide that they are incapable of taking the land, and they lose track of that loyal love and trust in God to accomplish that purpose that he set them out to accomplish. And so they wander for 40 years, and there's a generation lost there, right? So that brings us to close to 1400 B.C., and so we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and now we're at Deuteronomy. So what is Deuteronomy? It, it, and the reason I'm doing this, by the way, is not only to remember the story, but also to remind us of what will be the connection, key connections of Deuteronomy to the book of Kings. So what is Deuteronomy then? Anybody remember? That's right. So Moses himself at Meribah, you remember what happened to Moses? There was this incident of water and a rock. Okay. You remember? Yeah. And God said, told Moses to speak to the rock, but he struck the rock. That's right. And can you imagine as the covenant representative who led this group of people for such a long period of time, and God said to him, because you struck the rock, as the, the covenant example, a bad covenant example, therefore you won't be able to enter the land yourself. We ask that question of ourselves a lot, I think. Um, why don't we? Uh, so um, so the, in, the, in the Deuteronomic, and we're going to describe uh, the books of uh, jo- Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings as part of a Deuteronomic history. And so as we think about that, now we're in a position where God has called his people through Moses at the border to faithfulness to his covenant, uh, his covenant promises. So God is still asking his people in Deuteronomy to be faithful to the covenant. And that's the persistent message that, that we will maintain throughout the throughout the rest of the Old Testament is this message of God's uh, God's call to His people to be faithful to the covenant. And so let's, let's look, first of all, just briefly, and I know we're doing review, but I, I think it's important to build the framework here. Let's look in Deuteronomy chapter 6 quickly together. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And look at a few verses here uh, that, that, sum well, that sum up well uh, this, this beginning initiation of a Deuteronomic um, history for Israel. 
and this is this is a well, of course, well quoted set of verses in the New Testament as well. As well. Yeah, that's right, exactly. So the greatest commandment here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and if we start reading, let's start reading in verse 4, okay? This is the Shema statement of Israel. Have you heard that before? The Israel Shema statement. So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, okay? So heart, soul, and might, what does that represent for a human being? Yeah, and in the Hebrew, the, the idea of loving the Lord with the heart, that includes the mind, and, the, and in fact, who was it that added, you, you know that Jesus added the word mind to the commandment in the New Testament? So Jesus, recognizing the sense or the meaning of God's, God's word in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, talking about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, meaning your mind, your volition, so your will, and your affections, so the, the intent of your soul. And so this is a, a command here, as you think about these people on the border, ready to enter the promised land, this command that God is giving to them to love Him, this covenant kind of love and faithfulness that God's asking of His people, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your might. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And he, and he describes in great detail how earnestly God's people need to hold fast to this perspective of loyal love to God. And I tell you, that's, a, that's just such a challenge to us as the people of God. There, this, the persistence, the intensity, the intention of holding fast our responsibility as covenant representatives before God. And I think about the parallels even from Exodus chapter 19 where, where the descriptions given of God's specific people called out to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a unique people for God's possession. And then we see that in Peter as well, right? So that's who we are. And that, that intensity and that intention and that, that heart-level commitment to loyal love, obedience, and trust to God, that's, that's what we're responsible for even now. That's our covenant responsibility. And so as we see this uh, Deuteronomic situation unfold, let's turn over to, to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and just see a couple more verses here in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Verse, verse 1, he says, uh, Moses says here, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. But then down in verse 58, because we, we won't take a lot of time to read much of this, but down in verse 58 he says, if you're not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name of the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. And he goes on to say in verse 64, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which neither you or your fathers have known. And so God uses this, and you got, we won't take the time, but Ebal and Gerizim, these two mountains God establishes 
where the people of Israel are supposed to cite back and forth these blessings and curses. Because God wants this poignant, striking memory for them of the, the necessity that, they, that he, he requires of them to be faithful to the terms of, of His covenant arrangement with them. So, He also, by the way, in Deuteronomy, just to quickly mention, He gives the kings, the future kings of Israel, specific responsibilities. So, in advance of them becoming kings, and even in advance of a kingship, God gives them specific kinds of responsibilities in Deuteronomy chapter 17. He, and, is, and one of the key statements there, let me just read it for you in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 15. He says, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. He says that king should not acquire many horses and not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. That's going to sound familiar here in a minute as we know. And, when, and then in verse 18, this is Deuteronomy 17, 18, when he, shall sit on the, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levite priests. So these kings are supposed to be so familiar with the law of God that they keep a copy of the law handwritten for themselves. And we're, we're going to see lots of examples of that not being the case. So that Deuteronomic history, and, and just to, without being too technical, but in the, in the structure of the Hebrew Old Testament, you had those five books of the Torah, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then the next books in the Hebrew Old Testament were called the, the, the so there's the Tanakh, the, the Torah, the Nevim, which was Joshua, Judges, okay, which we've already covered, Samuel, you with me? and Kings as one book. So Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings were the next four books in the secret sequence of the Hebrew Old Testament. The reason is, is because they were, the Hebrews saw those as a follow-up, a historical follow-up to the book of De- Deuteronomy. So they saw that as a Deuteronomic history. Are you, are you following me there? So that unfolding of the history of Israel on the basis of the covenant responsibilities that people had before God that were established by Moses there in the book of Deuteronomy, which is why the kings had to continually make copies of the law because they were responsible to keep that as they were the covenant representatives before God responsible to keep that law for themselves and to make sure the people followed that law, obeyed that law. Okay, so... um, In all likelihood, then, the the author of the book of Kings wrote this book sometime after the fall of Jerusalem in the the second of the uh, kingdom falls. And we don't know exactly who the author is of the book. We do know that at times, uh, historically at times, Jeremiah has been cited, but there are reasons why that seems difficult. Uh, to, to accept, but I, we won't go into that this morning much. Um, now also keep in mind, uh, finally and thirdly, that the Davidic covenant serves as a backdrop for the book, uh, the, these books. Um, the Davidic covenant from First Samuel chapter or Second Samuel chapter seven, okay? 
You with me here? 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Davidic covenant, David as that exemplary king, and David particularly told that his son would reign on the throne, for one thing, but also that David would have an eternal line that would never end. And that's a, that's a massively significant promise because we have to, we, we reconcile that all the way through forward to the person of Christ. And we see many instances where the person of Christ is, is described as fulfillment of the Davidic promises. So that's an important connection point for us. Okay? Any questions about that set of historical references from you guys? That the Joshua, the judges in Joshua, Joshua judges are the conquest of the land, and then the judges period. That's a very dark, dark, cyclically negative period of time in Israel's history, pre-Kings, where they were intended to drive out the Canaanite um, peoples, and they and they failed to completely do that. So those preceded, and then Samuel initiated with Samuel. And then the, the King Saul, right? You remember King Saul and then King David. And then now here we are in Kings at the death of David. What covenant in Genesis 1 and 2 call? Uh, some, some would call it, so Gentry and Wellam would call it a creation covenant. Mm-hmm. Some, some would call it an Edenic covenant. Um, it, the, the word covenant isn't actually used until the Noahic covenant. But N-O-A-I-C? N-O-A... H. Yep. Okay. So that brings us to the death of David and first, uh, the first chapters of First Kings. Um, David in his old age here, and there's some accounts that we're not going to take up. But let's let's turn over to and uh, to First Kings chapter two. And let's see David's instructions to his son Solomon and. After the person of David in the Davidic covenant, we're looking for this eternal king who will fulfill the messianic promises, both in terms of redemption of the people of God and in terms of the eternal line that will never end. And so we're looking for that king. And so the book of Kings, which was one book in the Hebrew Old Bible, the the, um, Tanakh, it covers this 400-year period of the, the kings uh, that, that traces this idea. How will these kings fulfill their covenant responsibilities? Um, how will God's messianic lineage be preserved, which is a critical issue? Are you, are you following me there? Messianic lineage, meaning the person of Christ. How will that lineage get preserved? Um, how will they deal with the blessings and cursings? So how are they going to deal with that issue as well? So um, let's read a few verses here uh, from First Kings, cha- Kings chapter 2 about the person of Solomon. Does someone want to read for me um, verses 1 to 4 there about the person of Solomon? Chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. Yep. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and his statutes, his commandments, his rules and testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word 
that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack man lack a man on the throne of Israel. That's right. So, so Saul, David to instructing his son, and you see the language there in verse 4, that, that to walk before me in faithfulness with all your heart and all your soul. So that reiterated language of, of covenant responsibility. And the charge to Solomon that if he, were, if he does indeed follow God faithfully in covenant, that he will not lack a descendant on the throne. Now, the, the uniqueness of kings is that many of the, the successors of Solomon failed to demonstrate the kind of loyal love and obedience and trust that God asked of Solomon, and yet God deliberately, intentionally, faithfully preserved the line of the Messiah in spite of that. And we're going to see how that, that happened. Uh, if we turn over to chapter 3, verse 12, we see Solomon, so Solomon moves in a positive direction, okay? We know that about Solomon, don't we? That he moved in a positive direction. In chapter 3, verse 12, Solomon asks the Lord for wisdom, and we've talked about this. I know the huge conundrum for all of us is how a man who was the, the wise one ended up making the kinds of choices that he made. That's, that's a perplexing issue for us. We don't understand it. Um, how could you have this much access to wisdom of God and still make these kinds of choices? But in 3.12, we see Solomon granted wisdom like that. And um, it says there in, in verse 12, I, I do now do according to your word. I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall rise after you. I... What scares me to death about Solomon is with that level of access, he was still self-deceived enough to make really, really bad choices and, and makes me think often about the self-deception of, of the human soul. Um, we're, just, we're, we're continually needing, again, like we described in the beginning, we're continually needing a careful posturing and positioning of ourselves before God to, to recognize that we're in need of grace regularly applied to us, be, to be careful, to be very careful. Um, we see other evidences of, of the wealth and wisdom of Solomon here, and, um, and we're not going to read a lot of this content, but in chapters 5, what happens there in chapters five, chapter 5? Somebody just tell me, what's the, what's the, me, the gist of chapters 5, 6? What's happening there? What are the headers telling you? That's right. So David wanted to build a house for, for God. God said no to David, but he said your son will do that, right? So a permanent house built for God. Solomon built his, his palace. In chapter 8, the Ark of the Covenant is brought to the temple, which is really a significant event. And even in the life of David, you trace the movement of the Ark of the Covenant as the, the special place of God's presence. And then in the latter part of chapter 8, we see Solomon's prayers, which the majority of that content of Solomon's dedication to the Lord again resonates as, yes, we have a man who's on the right track, who's going to manage his covenant relationship with God appropriately, who's going to demonstrate loyal love to God in the way that God intends. And then we get down to verse um, 56. 
of chapter 8. And we see indication that maybe this isn't the eternal fulfillment Messiah King that God intends. When, when we read these, uh, these verses, it's uh, in chapter, um, let's see, 8, verse 56, and then um, I'm going to go beyond that. Down, uh, sorry, I'm going to back up to verse 46 here where Solomon says um, he's, he's praying to God on behalf of the people and he says, if the, your people go out to battle, this is verse 44, against their enemy. And then he, he, down in verse 46, he says, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and they are carried away in captivity to the land of the enemy. And if they turn their heart and they repent, and he goes on to describe their repentance, and then God restoring them to the land on the basis of their repentance. And so we see from Solomon there, he's recognizing that these people in all likelihood are not going to live up to the terms of the covenant. And there's a sense in which he himself is not maintaining a careful position before God of his own covenant responsibility, the one who represents the covenant before God. And so even though this, is, this section is the high, if in effect the high point of redemptive history, as you see there on your handout, um, the fact is is that this is it's difficult to um, to believe that Solomon is really prepared to lead the people in alignment with the covenant in the way that God would intend for him to do, and and we see the outcome of that. I, I'm not going to belabor the point of the outcome, but we we see the outcome of that in chapter 11. If you want to flip over there, in chapter 11. Um, in verse 3, and, and it's even starting a little earlier than that, uh, where, where it says in 11 verse 1, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Um, he, the Lord had said, you shall not enter into marriage with them because they'll draw your heart away after other gods. So the, the, the terms of the covenant specified that God wanted loyal love, meaning he would be the only one. And Solomon's marriage to, as we know, it's hard to even fathom, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Uh, it's hard for us to fathom that. But that was the reality for Solomon. And, uh, and it says in verse 4, when Solomon was old, his, his heart was turned away after other gods. And uh, he, he didn't follow uh, the covenant as a result of it. Any, any questions about that so far? I know we're moving quickly with... with it's a lot of chapters. It's a lot of content. So God says to Solomon in uh, verse 11 of uh, chapter 11 there, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, 11.11, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant, and again, the covenantal language is everywhere here, your stat the statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hands of your son. And then he says, but, however, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. 
and we could easily add for the sake of the people of God, us, right, for our sake, for the sake of that redemptive promise that we, we hang desperately, cling desperately to here when we see such, such evidences of lack of faithfulness from Solomon. And just, just to re- underscore again that the care, the care that each covenant representative needs to take before God in faithfulness, in that loyal love to God, that there are so many ways in which uh, our hearts deceive us. So we think, in, on the one hand, about the overt 700 and 300 of Solomon. And yet, in so many ways, if we had the time, we could think about the distracted and divided natures of our own hearts and the many kinds of idolatry that we ourselves pursue in so many directions that would represent similar kinds of lack of loyal love to God. And so I just challenge you, we have so much greater access to the Word of God even than these ones did. And uh, just encourage you to be thinking about your loyal love, your position of loyalty before God. What, is, what does trust and lo- loyal love mean for you? What, what kind of allegiances does that demonstrate for you? And allegiances and loyalty in God's economy mean obedience. We don't get the, the separation of obedience and trust in God's economy in the Old Testament and, and in the New Testament. So as we, as we move towards the New Covenant that we haven't mentioned after the Davidic, then we just need to keep reminding ourselves of the responsibility that we have as those who loyally love God, the covenant keeper, and we are those who are invested in that covenant. So just keeping moving here, and again, I, I almost always feel like apologizing for the speed of covering this much material. But um, the divided kingdom then, and you, you, I assume you guys are familiar with this, that, that Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the two leading figures who are following after Solomon, um, now set up two lines of descent that God will be working with in determining how to follow a pathway forward. And God has already decided, by the way, in the Davidic covenant to hardwire David backward to Adam and hardwire David forward to the Messiah. So what becomes critical is even in the lack of obedience on the side of what will become the southern kingdom, which is Judah and Benjamin, those two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, the remaining ten tribes will experience a whole succession of turmoil in numbers of um, six lines of kings. In other words, they don't have a continuous kingly line. But what we find is when we look forward to the book of Matthew, we find that the God held tightly to that line of Judah, and He didn't let any break occur from Adam to Christ. And he did that through the line of Judah. And that's really significant because it shows a, a mirac- one of the, the most miraculous aspects of God's sovereign work is his ability to maintain his purposes so specifically and still give humans the, the space to make lots and lots of bad choices. Okay, and, and God's, it's just some, it's an amazing miracle of God's sovereignty, and that's what we talk about as compatibilism, this amazing miracle of God. Praise Him for His forgiveness. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. In God's grace, in His common grace, and His specific grace, He manages that line of faithful forward direction with the kings of Judah because there are 20 and 20, and there, so we usually think of 20 and 20 kings, 20 on the side of Judah, 20 on the side of Israel, and every single one of the kings on the side of Israel was evil. Like there's no ambiguity about that. There are a few of the kings on the side of Judah that are evil and good mixed, and then there are a few that we would consider to be good kings. But the vast majority of those 20s are not. And so let's just take a couple of examples in our remaining time. And, um, and I know we're, we're running fast here, but let's look at 1 Kings 14 and especially Jeroboam. So I mentioned that descendant from Solomon, the, the divided kingdom is Jeroboam, Rehoboam. And 1 Kings 14, verse 14, describes the Jeroboam and the, the, the fact that Jeroboam made the decision. So when the kingdoms were divided, does anybody remember what the key act of Jeroboam was? What, what, did he, what was one of his first acts as king? Does anybody remember? Okay, that's fair enough. So anybody remember Jeroboam? What did he do? What was one of his first key acts as spiritual authority of the nation? Did he make calves? That's exactly right. Yeah, he did. And and that's right. And and not only that, but he it, the text deliberately describes the way that he crafted them after the golden calf issue in Egypt in Exodus chapter thirty-two. So what seems to us to be this insane move by the man who was one of the designators, and if we took the time, we would see that God actually told Jeroboam that he could preserve him if he was faithful to the covenant. God actually spoke to this man and said, if you're faithful to the covenant, your line can be preserved. And instead of that, he set up two golden calves, one in the far north up near Mount, um, the mountain up there, right, the uh, Mount Hermon, and one far down on the southern border with Judah, in, right on the edge of Benjamin, there, Ephraim Benjamin, in, in Bethel, which there's all kinds of ironies to that, let me tell you, because Jacob, Jacob had some experiences in Bethel that were really significant. And yet, he set up these golden calves of worship because he couldn't afford to have the people loyal to God in Jerusalem. He needed to have other places of worship established such that they would, he would maintain them within the boundaries of, of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so he set up those, those golden calves, and um, that's why these verses say here that the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers, scatter them beyond the Euphrates, because they have made their ashram, which is a god of the, the peoples there, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up. This is 14:16, because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. So once, so Jeroboam, and this isn't what you want with your life, by the way. Jeroboam became the the golden standard of wickedness. That's if you're going to be a golden standard, maybe wickedness won't be the direction to go with your standardization. But Jeroboam became the golden standard of wickedness, and all of the kings of the north were compared to him after that, all 20 of them. One of the most um, significant of which was Ahab, who occurred a little later. Um, 
during the time of these two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And we, we obviously do not have time to, to spend much time talking about Elijah and Elisha, but just to mention that these were two significant prophets because we're about to get into the prophets. So next week we're going to start the prophet Isaiah and all of those prophetic books that follow after the, the poetic books in the Old Testament are, are occurring during this time period of this 400 years of kings. So we got the 20 and the 20, and all of those prophets are prophesying during that time period to call people back to covenant faithfulness. And uh, Elijah and Elisha are two of those in the, in the midst of dealing especially with King Ahab and Jezebel, who was a Phoenician queen that, Jezebel, that Ahab took up, who was an idol worshiper and caused the people to sin with the Baal worship. You remember the story, right, of the confrontation there on the mountain of Mount Carmel and um, Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal. And then Elisha, who took, had a double portion of Elijah's um, authority, prophetic authority, and he himself then continued the, that same work of calling these kings to covenant faithfulness and to repentance. And, um, and then we see here in uh, 1 Kings 15, as we continue forward, we see um, Abijah, who's uh, one of the southern kings, okay? So Jeroboam and, 20, and 19 more kings after him. Rehoboam and 19 more kings after him. His son, Rehoboam's son, was named Abijah. And uh, just, just to note God's faithful promises uh, to his people here in 1 Kings chapter 15. Um, it says, 1 Kings, this, so this is again, this is southern kingdom now, Rehoboam's son Abijah. And God says to him, we read in verse 3, um, he walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, as the heart of David his father. So if the gold standard of wickedness is Jeroboam in the north, of course, the gold standard of faithfulness is David, right, in the south. And so he didn't have his heart set to walk before God uh, as David, his father, did. But it says here, and this is the salvific hope that we have, nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem. And uh, he, he, he held to his promise that he would not let David's line go. And if God let David's line go, we are lost. And so we're thankful beyond words that God held to the line of David. And um, so we have then the, this, the Assyrian army that comes down from the north and that destroys the northern kingdom there you see on your, on your, in your outline. Um, and um, the, this, this beginning of a poorly developing line of, of responsible kings um, in Judah even, that there are so many who don't, that, who don't follow after the covenant promises that aren't faithful. Uh, let's, let's quickly look at the person of Manasseh here, the one who shed innocent blood, because when Manasseh came into the picture, um, and one of the things I've found personally helpful, by the way, in reading Kings is to actually have a chart of some kind beside your Bible when you're reading Kings so you can track. 
I, I, truth is, at a given point, I just memorized them, all the kings. It, because there's several points that are confusing. One is, some of the same names are used in both lists. So you've got two Ahaziahs, you've got two Jorams, and not only that, but at a certain place in the Bible, they, they take on second names, and you don't, well, you're like, wait, who's Jeconiah? Um, I thought that was, you know, and, you're, and then suddenly you're confused. So I found it to be very encouraging and helpful to have either memorize the kings. I know that's a lot to ask, but you've memorized presidents and stuff before. You know, you can do it. And, and, or else have a chart with you uh, to, to track along. But let's, let's look at the, the final straw kind of king, Manasseh, who was king... Um, Number 14 in the line of Judah after Hezekiah, who was also a godly king that's mentioned there on your, on your notes. If it just as a reference point, that godly king is Hezekiah. Hey, Mike. Yeah. Is there, is there a good chart that you are aware of that you could point us to? Yeah, I could, yeah. I, I use, there's one that I've found on Bible Gateway that I've used for a long time. Bible Gateway? Is that BibleGateway.com? It is. And I can even give you the web link because it is helpful. And it also lists, what I like about it too, is as we get into the prophets, it shows how to relate the prophets to the kings. And so it's all there in one place. I know, I know it seems complicated, but if you want to benefit from the study of the kings, it, it really does help to do that. Um, and it'll, it'll affect Chronicles too. So yeah, we can point you to that. Um, so let's look really quickly. at. Let's flip all the way over, sorry, to 2 Kings. Second Kings, we're jumping because a lot of this is Elijah, Elisha stuff. So that's my excuse for skipping over so much terrain because Elijah and Elisha are all in there. But let's, let's skip to Second Kings chapter 21. 21. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's a long way from here, isn't it? Second Kings chapter 21, verse 10. Um. 2 Kings 21.10. This is king number 14 in the line of Israel. Okay? So Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah. Josiah is going to be a good king. And then, then Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah. It's all downhill from there. Um, so this is Manasseh. And, and it says in verse 10, And the Lord said by his servants the prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did. Those are pagan unbelievers, by the way. He's not, that's not a comparison to a king now. The Amorites did, who were before him, has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. That means I am going to wipe them out. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it, turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger. And so... Once that tipping point is reached with Manasseh, um, then we know that Judah will be removed as well. And you, you guys probably remember that the two key superpower nations in this time period were Assyria, who conquered the northern kingdom there, 
722 BC. Again, another encouragement for you, by the way. I know we don't like doing this kind of stuff, but memorize a few key dates that connect into this Old Testament history. It really helps you. It'll give you some reference points. If you, if you go back to Abraham and you start with 2091 in Abraham and 1446 in the Exodus and 1400 in the Conquest, and then you can get to David, King Saul in 1050, and David in 1010. And you can get to Solomon in 970, the divided kingdom in 931, the conquest in 722, the, the southern kingdom is conquered in 586, the return to the land in 538. And this it, is BC? If, yeah, all BC. But I, and that's not that many. So if you, if you take up 10 or 12 of these key dates, and you can create a timeline of reference points for yourself, you can place a lot of these events historically. And that can be very helpful, just for what it's worth. It, so then if you string that together with a few of these covenant markers and key characters, some key dates, you can build a framework of understanding for the Old Testament. That can be super helpful for you. Because what I find to be the case, you probably grew up this way too, we grow up without a big picture understanding of the Old Testament. Yeah. We got all kinds of scattered stories. But we don't understand the redemptive historical narrative that God puts together for us. And so just to encourage you guys to consider doing something like that, even though it's work and we're all old, uh, most of us at least. So um, <laughs> old people don't learn much, right? Um, but anyway, so Judah will be removed as well. That's Second uh, Kings there, 23. Even after the reforms of Josiah, and we, we don't have the time, to look at the king of Josiah, but Josiah is such an encouragement, and you almost get the feeling this tide could be turned with him, that he does such good work. In fact, it's here where Josiah, through Hilkiah, his, a priest, he discovers, guess what he discovers? Guess what jo Josiah discovers? He discovers the law. What? <laughs> this was the whole basis of the covenant relationship of Israel to God. And they didn't, he's like, wait a minute, there's this really important book that we're responsible to. In fact, I was supposed to have been copying this. So some period, somewhere after Solomon, people quickly, these kings quickly lost the responsibility to copy the law, right? At least copy the book of Deuteronomy, if not, if not more of the Old Testament law. So Josiah discovers the book of the law. He makes all kinds of amends to try to repair the temple. Um, and to, to do rest, restorative work in light of the covenant, but the tipping point has already been reached. And so God has already determined that the nation of Judah will suffer the same fate as the nation of, of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so the Syrian conquest in 722, and then the Babylonian conquest of the nation of Judah in 586. And uh, we just have one... Small picture of hope as we, as we finish up today. We have a small picture of hope here. So the final king, the final king of, um, of, of Judah, the nation of Judah, in 2 Kings chapter 25, at the very end there, in these last, last verses, um, chapter, verses 27 to 30, um, it's, uh, it's, we're talking about Jehoiakim, that's right, who's all, who in, the, in some places is called Jeconiah, which is confusing. Um, but Jeho Jehoiakim, it says here, 
And we're talking about kings led into captivity, their sons, in the case of Zedekiah, his sons slaughtered before him. Because a lot of times, in order to keep lines of succession from going forward, they would slaughter the children of the kings. Uh, so his son slaughtered before him, and then his eyes put out, and him led into captivity. And then Jehoiakim, here in verse 27 of 25, says, And in the 37th year of the exile of, uh, the, of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the twelfth month, on the 27th day of the month, e- evil... Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his, pre, his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, according to his daily needs, as long as he lived. And so we see the smallest glimmer of God's faithfulness, and I, I looked forward, and he, his name is in the, in the genealogy in Matthew. So he's there, right? So we know he connects to the person of Christ, and uh, we know that um, God preserves that line. So he starts the line in it with Adam. He preserves it. Even though Abel was killed by his brother, he preserves it through Seth. It comes through Judah, because Reuben, Levi, and Simeon the other three older sons were violent and disobedient, and so God preserved the line through Judah, through Abraham, through David, through this line of successions of Judean kings to Jehoiakim, and then on to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God does that preservative work on all of our behalf. And I, I trust, as we close, that that leaves you in a place to contemplate the significance of our loyal love to God, for one. For one, that, that what does it mean for us to to be standing in a place now of a, a new covenant? So the one in which hearts of stone were made hearts of flesh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, as a Spirit called us into redemptive relationship with Him, Christ as the the gracious, all sufficient One who's brought us individually as covenant representatives before the throne of God. And we're the ones who draw near to God with clean hands and I trust obedient, loyal hearts to Him as we see Christ fulfilling all of that covenant work that God was doing in the Old Testament. That puts us in a uniquely privileged position. Um, it's hard for you guys, you know, we've been in places, just as I, as I said, as I close, we've been in places, I remember when we were translating portions of the Old Testament for the Atta people, and we were translating the book of Ruth, and they, they had heard a lot of the teaching about the Old Testament covenants with the Jews, and they heard the story in the book of Ruth, of Ruth, this Moabite, being brought into the covenant lineage of the, of the people of God. And they, the reason that was so exciting for them was because they were those far-off ones who got included into the covenant promises of God. They weren't part of the lineage of Judah, not physically, but they got, had the privilege of being brought into the lineage because of the covenant promises of God in very similar ways as he brought this Moabitess in who was, who was willing to put herself under the, the wings of protection of the covenant God, Yahweh, of the nation of Israel. And that's us as well, right? Most of us, if not all of us, are those who've been brought under that same covenant protection.
from God. And so we just want to remember the, the privileged position that God has, has brought us into as a result of that, right? Any, any final thoughts or questions?